Thank you, Noe. The kiddos can now be dismissed for their scripture time, grades three and below, if you would like. Matt? I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, as usual, and if you do, turn in them, please, to Matthew chapter 15. Turn or scroll. And if you are using one of the Bibles that is in the backs of the chairs provided, you'll find our passage for today on page 821. Excuse me, yeah, 821. Well, we are at the point in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus has now spent significant time teaching and ministering to the Jewish people and doing so in such a way that displeased many of the religious leaders, displeasing leaders and even perhaps confusing those who weren't religious leaders. Just a couple of passages ago, we heard that Jesus declared all foods clean. So that sort of upset things for the way people thought and of course changed things for us even to this day. But right from the get-go of Jesus's public adult ministry, his message was confrontational. Right in the beginning of his ministry, all the way back in chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew, Jesus, it is said, went about preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. And from that point on, Jesus's ministry was characterized by events that the gospels record for us that show that his message had some teeth to it. Jesus was not the kind of man that culture often imagines or depicts. He was not a docile and timid man such as romantic period religious artwork might portray. Jesus was a man who acted with purpose. He was a man on a mission and literally every single word that he said, every step that he took, every person that he encountered and interacted with had intentionality behind it. His sitting down on a mountain to preach his Sermon on the Mount was intentional. His teaching regarding the cost of following him and the persecution that is sure for his servants was intentional. His parables were strategically crafted in order to veil the riches of the kingdom from his enemies and reveal them to his people. His miracles were intentional too. From the healing of the centurion's servants to calming dangerous weather conditions to feeding a massive crowd, every miracle Jesus performed was strategic. It was real. It was intentional. And so contrary to what you may hear from some liberal theologians, Matthew did not make up any of these stories to allegorize the wisdom and love of Jesus. These things really mightily and intentionally were, in, were performed by Jesus. And most of the time, Jesus' mission was squarely aimed at the chosen people of God, the Jews, the people of Israel. And we're only roughly halfway through Matthew's gospel, but that's been clear so far already, and that is an emphasis of Matthew's gospel in particular, a distinction of his, you might say, out of the four gospels we have in the New Testament. Matthew has been clear regarding his understanding that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Jews. 
From the very earliest parts of Matthew's gospel, he quoted religious Jewish, I don't need, really need to say religious, Jewish Old Testament prophecy, and he makes the connections between Jesus and his words and his works and the Jewish history and prophecy and writings that preceded Jesus. The Jews were the chosen people of God, and the Jewish chosen Messiah of God was coming to them to usher in the kingdom of God. And we have observed already together that it was an unexpected kingdom. Not a kingdom that was ushered in with political might or nationalistic fanfare. Jesus's was and is a kingdom of servanthood, of meekness, of suffering. At first, anyway. The days of worldwide peace and joy and united worship of the one true God was promised to come one day and will come, but the kingdom of God was still at that moment and is for us this kind of already and not yet kingdom and therefore unexpected. Not exactly the way that some would have thought the arrival of the Messiah would go. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, we see this unexpected kingdom unfolding in unexpected ways. And the text before us today contains yet another one of these unexpected elements, which is that while most of the time Jesus and his ministry was aimed at Gentiles, or as we've already explored in previous passages, his priority was the Jews, even though his priority was the Jews, the Gentiles, in other words, everybody who's not an Israelite, were also deeply part of Jesus's ministry strategy. And his continued journey in our text this morning shows this. Now, in the original Star Wars's second act, there is a lot of stuff with the main characters in what we might call enemy territory on the Death Star, trying to get out and get this message to the rebel base that can save the galaxy. And more modern, a more modern World War I movie called 1917 does this as well. The main characters are tasked with taking a message into enemy territory in order to save the lives of many of the Allied soldiers. Enemy territory can be a bit of a thrilling setting for a story, and there's a sense in which it's the setting for this section of Matthew's gospel. In verse 21 of chapter 15, we saw recently that Jesus entered into the pagan region of Tyre and Sidon, and we saw that there he graciously healed a Canaanite woman who trusted in him as God's Messiah, though she herself was not a Jew. And now in our text, it says in verse 29 that Jesus went on from there and walked by the sea and went up on a mountain and sat down. So actually, verse 29 kind of sounds a little bit like he left the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon. And he actually did leave Tyre and Sidon. So why would I say that he is still in enemy territory? Well, interestingly, Mark's account of this same story in Mark's chapter 7 
gives us some more specifics. In verses 24 through 30 of Mark's chapter 7, Mark records the exact same story as we looked at last week in Matthew's record. And then in verse 31 of Mark 7, I have it on the screen for you, Mark says, He, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So that's very similar to Matthew 15, 28, excuse me, 29. He went on from there, from Tyre and Sidon, went beside the Sea of Galilee. And then Mark gives us this added detail that the region that Jesus was in was the Decapolis. And that is important because the Decapolis was not a Jewish region. The Decapolis was on the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and was named Decapolis for its 10 Hellenistic cities. I'm going to guess that none of us have used the word Hellenistic this week, so perhaps you don't know what that means. It essentially means Greekified. I did make that up. That was not in any dictionaries. To be Hellenistic essentially means to be a city that wasn't necessarily Greek in origin, but had adopted Greek life, culture, politics, religion. And so, was, so it was with the Decapolis. And that's why this was still a kind of enemy territory for Jesus. He was in this Greekified region, this Hellenistic Decapolis region, a place of Greek culture, Greek politics, and Greek religion, not a Jewish place. Now, there were Jews there, certainly, but they were a minority, at least as it related to culture. And these people in the Decapolis, this region, became unexpected recipients of God's grace and an unexpected source of glory. So let's get into this. Our first observation in this relatively small passage is that we see that the Gentiles were recipients of God's redemption plan. We've already seen that in verse 29, that that's where Jesus was and continued to be in, this Gentile region. You'll recall, perhaps, if you were here with us or if you listened to a recording later, the story of the Canaanite woman that precedes this text. One of the points we observed that Jesus was making there was that his priority was toward the Jews. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was the rescuer of the lost sheep of Israel. And so in a real sense, the pagan Gentile woman of the text before the one we're looking at today had no right to his miraculous messianic power. But we also saw in that passage that Jesus had very much also come for Gentiles like her. And in today's passage, that becomes clearer and it will continue to become more clear as the New Testament progresses all the way to the last book of the Bible where the people of God in the presence of God are described by John in Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10 as a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb with palm branches and crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. That's where this is all headed. 
But at the time of Jesus' ministry in the Galilean region, it wasn't quite as clear to the people of God as it is to us now who hold all of God's Word in our hands and literally in our pockets as well. And so that's probably got to be part of why Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3, called this such a great mystery. And I'm going to invite you to turn for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 3. I'd like you to scroll or turn there and see it for yourself because it's a huge point that has to be seen in connection with what Jesus is doing. Ephesians 3, 1 through 12. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so friends, the Gentiles were part of the end game, so to speak, for God's plan to redeem sinful humanity. And that is why Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon. That's why he was in this Decapolis region, because in the grand scheme of things, he was their Messiah too. And as we saw last week, Jesus' priority was the Jews. He was their Messiah first. But when he came to the Decapolis in Matthew 15, it was because he had come for Gentiles too. And that is good news for you and for me who are not Jews. And so we see that the redemption plan was perfectly fine-tuned for the unleashing of God's love and mercy on unworthy sinners all throughout humanity, beginning with God's chosen people, but clearly aimed at the rest of the world. I find it interesting that Matthew records at the end of verse 29 that he went up on a mountain and sat down there. Jesus, while in this region that Mark tells us is the Decapolis, goes up on a mountain and sits down. And I can't help but suspect that this is an even more significant point than a simple reference to the humanity of Jesus being fatigued and wanting to take a seat. Here's what I mean. Do you remember what Jesus did when he sort of arrived to the Jews in Matthew 4 and Matthew 5? 
The end of chapter 4 of Matthew shows this sort of intro, this sort of summary of what Jesus was doing in the Galilean region. Do you see, if, you, if you've turned or scrolled to chapter 4, verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel. His fame spread everywhere. In verse 25, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis in Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan and so forth. So there's this introductory phrase here or paragraph here from Matthew that in, as he goes into Galilee, he's serving everyone. He's ministering to those sick and afflicted and oppressed. And then in the beginning of chapter 5, it says he goes up on the mountain and sat down. Fast forward to chapter 15, verse 29, and what's Jesus doing in a Gentile context? He's up on a mountain, and he's sitting down, and he's ministering. I don't think that's a coincidence. I suspect it's a deliberate choice on Matthew's part whose writing contains thematic through lines of Jesus' Jewish focus while simultaneously ministering to Gentiles. And so it would make sense that Matthew would want to identify a parallel like sitting down on a mountain to minister to the Jews and then later sitting down on a mountain to minister to the Gentiles. Now if you're wondering whether or not this plan to save the Gentiles along the Jews was actually indicated biblically anywhere else before the time of Jesus, it was indicated right at the very beginning of God's covenant relationship with Israel. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3 on the screen. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, through the great nation that God would make out of Abram, the whole world would be blessed. So yes, the plan was always to bless all the families of the earth through God's redemption plan. And that phrase in Genesis, all the families of the earth, kind of reminds me of what we looked at already when John recorded in Revelation 7 that there would be peoples and tribes of every kind worshiping the Lord together. Everyone, everywhere. And the way that these families of the earth would be blessed was through God's redemption plan that centered and still centers on Jesus, the truest Son of God, the truest Israel, we could say, the ultimate chosen one, the beloved Son of God who came to redeem the people of God from all over the world from the judgment that they had earned because of their sin. And so we see this astonishing and glorious grace of God aimed squarely at non-Jews like our brother Kyle who shared his testimony of God's saving grace in his life just a moment ago. Gentiles like me, Gentiles like you. That Jesus would be the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy that foretold that a Savior would come one day to rescue His people and that Jesus would have His sights set not only on saving Israel, but all the families of the earth. And friend, that's why if you've never trusted in Jesus 
as that Messiah, as your only hope for redemption and for restoration to the relationship with God that he wants, this passage in Matthew 15 calls you to do so today. And if you have questions about that, our prayer team, as always, will be available to you in the back after the service to talk about what that means and to spend some time in prayer. Well, look at what comes next in verse 30. It says, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. Also sounds a little bit like that end of Matthew 4, doesn't it? So the second observation we have here is that the Gentiles were beneficiaries of Jesus' ministry. They were part of the plan, and then they actually received it. He sat down on the mountain. Great crowds come to him for help. And so we continue to see what it seems like Matthew was getting at in this whole section of Matthew 15, 21 through 38, which we'll actually finish next week, which is that Jesus' ministry wasn't just for the Jews. And think, friend, about how that might have been hard for the Jews who were with him or perhaps watching him from a distance to wrap their minds around because of their long-standing viewpoint and even prejudice regarding non-Jews. There was a lot that Jesus did and said that was hard for the people of God to wrap their minds around. We already talked about the whole declaring foods clean thing. No need to restrain yourself from any kind of food anymore. But here's another one. Jesus is here for the Gentiles too? Hmm. And of course, by the time Matthew wrote his gospel, they were getting the picture a bit more clearly, but then Matthew's gospel, as it was distributed among the people of God, would have been a big part of what God was using to then teach the Jews who had embraced Jesus as Savior and King that yes, the Gentiles are part of the plan as well. And of course, I don't need to rehash everything that I just said over the last several minutes about the Gentiles having always been part of redemption's plan, but I do want to read verse 30 again with Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6 in mind. Look at Isaiah 35 on the screen. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, which is the only way I can ever hear it in my mind because of Handel's Messiah, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now look at verse 30. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet and he healed them. We've identified a few times already in our series in Matthew, but it's worth repeating here that Matthew frequently makes reference and connection to Old Testament Scripture and Jesus' ministry. He regularly writes in a way that directs the reader's attention to the fact that the person and work of Jesus is directly tied to what had been prophesied many years previously. And so I don't think it's any coincidence that these words in verse 30 would remind us of what had been prophesied in Isaiah regarding the miraculous ministry of the Messiah. It's also interesting to see in verse 30 
that there is no hesitation indicated here on Jesus' part. The seeming hesitation to heal the Canaanite woman in verses 21 through 28 was, as we've already surmised together, part of something bigger regarding a test for her faith than it was an actual reluctance to heal her. And here in verse 30, there's this great crowd with people who can't walk, people who can't see, people who are paralyzed, people who can't hear or speak. And then it says, many others coming to him. There's a lot of Gentiles coming to him. And the end of verse 30 simply says, and he healed them. And so don't let it be lost on you what a momentous thing this was. Remember, as I've said, Jesus was in enemy territory, this setting of the Decapolis, this Hellenistic, Greekified region. And so this should not, if you're like I am and you picture things in your mind in a kind of like a movie going through your head, this should not conjure up in your mind whatever you might think of regarding some Jewish city or Jewish town or Jewish field where these Jewish people and Jewish foods and Jewish accents and whatever else are taking place. No, this was a Hellenized region, so it would have looked more like something out of a TV show about Homer's Odyssey than something out of the current TV show about Jesus' life, The Chosen. Here's this nomad Jewish radical rabbi with his group of misfit Jewish followers surrounded by a huge amount of of Decapolis residents. And he's healing them. What a sight. The Savior of all who come to him. There is, of course, much for us then to consider about our heart for all the peoples of the world. Sharing the gospel with every kind of person in our community and in the communities around the globe, whether by going to a different place or certainly through supporting those who do. Clearly, Jesus had a heart for what we would think of as missions. And what results from Jesus' ministry to these Gentiles? Wonder and worship. The final observation from our passage is this. The Gentiles were then instruments of God's exaltation. They were part of the plan. They actually received the grace of God through Christ. And then they were instruments of exaltation as a response. The response of the people in this moment and this region to the miracles of Jesus was to, as it says in verse 31, glorify the God of Israel, the one true God. And this is actually another reason, a more immediate reason in this context that it makes sense to understand that the region that Jesus was in was Gentile. If you want to argue with whether or not Mark's comment about the Decapolis is applicable to this region, why would Matthew record that these people glorified the God of Israel if they were Israelites? It wouldn't make sense for Matthew to specify it in that way. If they were Israelites, Matthew would just have said they glorified God or even they glorified their God. Matthew's readers would get the picture. But Matthew says that they glorified the God of Israel because something amazing is happening here. The people who are not part of Israel are giving glory to Israel's God. 
Jesus is spreading the gospel to the nations. The plan that was promised in Genesis 12 and that will culminate in the throne room of heaven envisioned by John in Revelation 7 was unfolding here in a foretaste sort of way before the very eyes of everyone assembled around Jesus in that moment and before our eyes as we read Matthew's account of it today. Undeserving people, not part of the kingdom of God nationally, coming to Jesus in faith and receiving his grace and power as they were healed and they were therefore changed. However many of these people who had this encounter with Jesus and then truly believed in him repentantly, believing that only he had the power to save them, repenting of their sins, turning to follow him, any of those people who did that went from not being the people of God to being the people of God. Even though they were not physically the Jews. So do you see what I'm getting at here, my friends? This is the heart of the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus came to reveal. The news that our church is called to preach. That every one of us in this room is called to spread. That even though we do not deserve the favor and love and mercy of God, He has given it to us in Christ. We rebelled against his rule as a human race, but he made the way for us to be restored to the place of children. We chose self-rule over his benevolent, wise, and powerful rule, but he chose to intervene with grace and conquer our hearts with love. We chose sin, and he chose us anyway. We get restored. Jesus gets pierced and bruised. We get drawn near as Jesus is forsaken by the Father. We get robes of righteousness while Jesus takes on our filthy, sinful garments. We are given a seat with Him forever in glory because He set aside that seat in glory that He enjoyed forever in eternity past with the Father and Spirit in order to descend from heaven and literally get His hands dirty with our mess and our brokenness and the consequences of our sin against Him so that He could save us. Oh, child of God, what wondrous grace has been shown to us. Unexpected grace because we have no claim to the favor of God in terms of His covenant with Israel. We are undeserved because all that we have earned for ourselves is suffering and eternal punishment as just payment for our sins. And yet, because of the grace of Jesus lavished on us, in power and love and mercy, we now receive the Savior of the world, our precious Jesus. And what it led to these people in the Gentile region is what it should lead to in us, which is the exaltation of God. These people saw and experienced the grace of God in Jesus, and it led them to glorify God because of Jesus. That's why I referred to the sermon today as unexpected grace and glory. These Gentiles, these Hellenistic, Greekified people of the Decapolis praising God. What a sight. What a foretaste of the scene around the throne of God. 
Now let me ask you, Redeemer, members, attenders, family, does the reality of the unexpected grace of God to you reside in your mind and heart? And is the resultant response, therefore, of your lips, of your thoughts, of your very life, the glorifying of God? Or have the residents of your mind and heart become discontentment, cynicism, lukewarmness, and fear? You see, I can't, uh, I can't help but imagine that some of us might read this passage where Jesus, and if you have an ESV like I do, it says Jesus heals many. We read this passage and think, well, that's awfully nice for those people, but my disease hasn't been healed. My trials haven't been removed. I keenly feel the opposition of the evil one and his forces, so I don't feel very much like an object of God's grace. My dear friend, if that's you, first of all, you're not alone. I've been there. Many, maybe all of us in this room can say that they've been there too and are perhaps even with you now. So you're not alone and it's okay to be there as long as you don't stay there forever. So you're not alone. Second of all, friend, those unhealed diseases, those unfixed problems, those un defeated battles are actually part of God's grace to you today. And you're going, sorry, what now? I know it sounds strange, but it's true. Friends, sometimes Jesus will heal you or deliver you from whatever trial you are facing very quickly. He does that sometimes. But sometimes he doesn't remove your trial or heal your disease right away but it doesn't mean he never will. And it doesn't mean that he hasn't already delivered you from what you need deliverance from the most, which is our sin. Do you see what I'm getting at, friends? There is certainly, definitely, a day that is coming when the Lord himself will return and when the world we live in today will be different into a world that we live in forever. You will be healed. You will be delivered. You will have a resurrection body. You will no longer ever be tempted to sin. You will never be subject to anything other than that which is perfect. All because of what Jesus has already done for us in the gospel. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And that means that through faith, we are guaranteed to see his face one day and be whole and healed and free forever. And so even if you haven't experienced the physical healing that this passage refers to, if you, my friend, are in him through faith, then you have experienced the healing of Jesus spiritually. And that is cause for praise and glory despite whatever anything else you might be facing. Because that is even more important than physical or relational or emotional wholeness in this life. And God cares about those things too. And you will one day be healed if you are in him. But friends, you can feel physically well 
and be spiritually dead. You can have financial stability and be eternally damned. You can feel good in your emotions and in your mental health and be on a fast track to destruction later. But if you're in Christ, your eternity, your future is certain. And it's a future of the presence of Jesus forever. And so dearly beloved child of God, under the sound of my voice at this moment, the lies of the evil one and the message of his world shout loudly to us. I know. They call us to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the power of God, to doubt the wisdom of God. They call us to try to wrestle the rule of our lives out of God's hands and into our own. And they call us to give in to feelings of guilt and condemnation and shame that would seek to persuade us that the Christian life is just a a pointless hamster wheel that's going nowhere at all. But my friends, the text that we have before us today shows clearly that the lives of Gentiles like you and me have always been in the divine plan of God's redemption. And therefore, our lives do have a purpose, which is to glorify God. To sing His praises with His people, as you've already done and will do again in just a moment. To spread the gospel to the world in our city and the cities around us and all throughout the globe. To train up our children and our grandchildren in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. To fellowship with and edify and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ with this good news of Jesus' grace to unworthy sinners. And to trust Him even when life is exhausting and even agonizing. Trusting that His divine purposes are unchanged. They are good and wise and sure. You've heard me say before that in the Scriptures we need to be very careful not to read ourselves into passages that we don't really fit into. Like, for example, in David and Goliath, we are not supposed to identify with David in the story and leave with a takeaway that we can defeat the giants in our lives too. Rather, we should identify more with the cowering Jewish soldiers who couldn't figure out a way to save themselves in the presence of this powerful agent of evil, this enemy of God, and therefore needed God's chosen king to step in for them. Or better yet, maybe we would even identify with the Philistines, the enemies of God, who deserve to be destroyed. But today's passage is an exception. It's literally about Gentiles being recipients of God's grace and unexpected instruments of God's glory. And that is literally us. People with no claim to the Savior, but who find themselves by pure grace as recipients and beneficiaries of His saving power. So my friend, by all means, look at these words of Matthew 15 about Jesus' grace to a bunch of undeserving Gentiles and see yourself in that story. And if you've never turned to Him in faith, today would be a great day for that. And if you are already in Christ, but you have a hard time seeing yourself in the story because your situation isn't healed or restored at the moment, remember, my friend, if you are in Christ, the Messiah has saved you. And because of His unexpected grace in your life to save you from sin, you now get to spend eternity being an unexpected instrument of his glory in his presence now and forever. Let's pray.
God, we give you praise that you have sent your Son, our Messiah, to be the Savior of all who will believe in him. And that all of us in this room who are not ethnically Jewish still have claim to your saving power through faith, purely by your grace. We thank you and we ask that you would help us to respond with lives that give you glory through our words, through our thoughts, through our actions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in prayer. Amen.